0: still clap for it? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'm looking forward to continuing on here into Galatians chapter 5 as we, be, well, we continue, that is, to keep talking about that gospel ethic. Now that we've understood that gospel theology throughout the first four chapters of Galatians, how then shall we live as those who understand the freedom that is in Christ? And today, Paul will be touching on a very important area as to how to live in freedom as Christians. And that area is really what to do about those, specifically those false teachers, who want to take away that freedom in Christ and to bring you back under bondage. And the words that he says here gives us a lot of insight for As Christians, not only how we re-understand our freedom in light of those who want to take it away, but also how we as Christians make a stand against the world who will not appreciate the message of the offense of the cross. And before we get into that passage today, let's go ahead and ask for the Lord's blessing in a time of prayer. Lord, we thank you for, specifically right now, how all-encompassing your word is, Lord. Even though this book was written across many years, thousands and thousands of years ago, Lord, there is never a moment where this book is outdated and does not touch on things that we as really human beings need to understand today. Your truth and your word is timeless, Lord. And in an age where it feels like we're doing all that we can to try to stay relevant We oftentimes miss the fact that all you have called us to really understand and appreciate are the basic things of your gospel, Lord, and how that gospel changes us and how we are meant to be a beacon of change to the world. So we thank you for how sufficient your word is, how total it is, and of course, Lord, how impactful and piercing it is to the very hearts of humanity, Lord. I pray we appreciate it today. I pray we understand it to the best of our ability. And I pray that your spirit would help us to be able to bring these principles into our heart, and into our lives. It is in Christ's name that I pray these things. Amen. It might feel like throughout all this book we've gone through that Paul has nothing but negative things to say about the people he's writing to. In fact, uh, in the very first chapter of Galatians, we saw one of the well-known phrases Paul says in this book, in which he talks to his audience and says in the very endearing way, you foolish Galatians! And many times he has begged and pleaded with them to stop being deceived, stop being short-sighted, remember who you are. But we see here in verse 7 immediately that the Galatian church was not always in the state that they are now. The Apostle Paul, in thinking about the the life of the Galatian church in verse 7, remembers the time when they were running well. Specifically, they were running the race of the Christian life very well. And that idea of running a race, that analogy is a favorite one of Paul when he talks about living the Christian life. He calls it a race. And it's a very uh, big implication to me and a big appreciation that I have that Paul was a sports fan of some sort in his day. That's a... That's a cool thing to know, especially as we have uh, God's sport, football, approaching up here pretty soon. And more important than that, that means fantasy football is approaching. Can I get an amen to that? Okay, all right, I guess I won't. That's fine. That's fine. It's not for everybody. But Paul talks about the race of the Christian life. And to be clear here, he's not talking about it as if it's a sprint, as if it's a give your all for these 40 meters or 40 yards or for however long a sprint can be, really what Paul is talking about with the race is he's thinking more of a marathon. And even though the Galatians at one point ran this marathon of the Christian life well, the marathon that Paul is talking about, the Christian life, it really is an injury-plagued marathon. I mean, you think practically just about the kind of injuries an athlete might have during a long stretch of them playing whatever sport that is that they want to play. Injuries can come from so many different ways. Uh, for one, they can come because of the, in, the intentional work of somebody else, somebody like their opponent. They can come simply because of poor conditions that they're playing in. They can come also because of poor preparation on the part of the athlete in preparation for the event. And we think about the Christian life that's so true of us also. Even if we do run it well, we face potential calamity from forces outside of us, specifically the enemy, Satan himself. We face the difficulties of trials and tribulations, things that we didn't ask for, things that we aren't sure why we're going through them, but they're there. And we also face the challenges of our own sin as we battle those things. At one point in time, the Galatian church was running the race well. And Paul, in remembering this, asked them a kind of a rhetorical question. He asked them, who then hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, we know on the one hand that obviously there are false teachers that are corrupting the Galatian church. But we also know that Paul, in some sense, does hold his people responsible for fleeing the faith. Otherwise, he would not be confronting them in the way that he is. But we think about the fact that we are called to run the race of the Christian life well. There is so much importance when he asks the question about who hindered the Galatian church from obeying the truth? Because the reality is, those three words, obeying the truth, that really pick captures what it is to run the race well. Because you get both of those necessary sides to the Christian life, to the Christian gospel ethic. For one, there is obedience, right? There's obeying the truth, which is, a call to action and a call to submit to the thing that we have been convicted of, the thing we have been called to see as true. So the Christian life is not just another philosophy. It's not just another worldview. If being a Christian to somebody means it's just a title they have to write to describe themselves on a resume or a social media bio, then they're misunderstanding what the Christian life is. But also, the Christian life is not just blind obedience also. To be running the race well means that we live in obedience in light of the truth, as Paul tells us. Meaning there are many people who might be controlled, who might be obedient, who might even be benefits to society. But if they are not obeying the truth, then they are not running the race at all let alone well. And I focus in verse seven on Paul talking about the Galatians leaving the, the, the race of obeying the truth because I think as we begin to understand the gospel ethic Paul was still unpacking for us, it's important to understand in a general sense what it is to run well in obeying the truth because we get two important principles of how our beliefs, how our creed, so to speak, interacts with our practice or with our conduct. To put it in the way that I have your notes right here, here is how both creed, the truth, and conduct, the obedience, interact. In the first place, our creed informs our conduct, as I have for your notes. Our creed informs our conduct. And then our conduct results from our creed. And when I talk about creed, I'm not talking about the really bad band that existed at one point. Some of you got that, and I appreciate that. I'm talking about the beliefs the Christian holds to, the statement of belief And so how we live as Christians always has to be informed by our beliefs, which is why Paul makes it a very, very important point to always get to the heart of his people before he comes to their conduct. This is why he always brings the gospel before he brings the gospel ethics, because your beliefs have to be at the foundation of your practice. But much like the Apostle James says in his own work, if there is a faith that has no works at all. What does he call that? A dead faith. It's a false faith. Our conduct results from our creed. And there is never in any of these circumstances in scripture a call to some type of unattainable perfectionism. No one's looking for that. But a gospel, as predicted all the way back in the Old Testament, that is true, brings a changed heart. So how do we run the race well? We understand and believe the truth. And then that truth, not the world, not our culture, nothing else, that truth alone frames our conduct. But unfortunately, though the Galatian church may have one time had understood this, They had been hindered, both by themselves and by false teachers. And Paul is going to dig in a bit about the dangers of what false teaching does. And as we begin to understand this truthfully, I'll apply these principles not just to false teaching, but also to what sin in general does. And there are a couple of ways Paul unpacks this. He will tell us in these next few verses where false teaching comes from. He'll tell us what false teaching does and he'll also tell us where false teaching eventually will lead. So verse 8, we see first and foremost where this false teaching comes from. And specifically, Paul clarifies where it does not come from. Verse 8, this persuasion, this persuasion to leave the race and running the race well is not from him who calls you so we know where this does not come from we know where this call to legalism this call to works righteousness this call to feeling in bondage none of that ever comes from the father none of that comes from Christ in fact if you go back in to the very beginning of his book, to Galatians chapter one, verse six, Paul clarifies how God calls his people. He calls them in grace. So that which comes from grace comes from the father. But that which comes from his enemies is full of legalism. So where does false teaching come from? Ultimately, it comes from the enemies of the Lord. And of course, as many commentators have noted, every false teaching, every division of the church can eventually be traced back to one specific enemy, the adversary himself, who exists to try to destroy and divide the church of Christ. Paul also tells us in verse 9 what false teaching eventually does. Verse 9, he tells us with a, uh, another very common biblical analogy here that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he's using a, a reference to basically the making of bread. Bread will never, the, the dough of the bread will never rise unless there is some yeast, some leaven to cause it to rise. But all it takes is a little bit of that, and it will rise. The whole thing will. In fact, uh, this, this reference of leaven ultimately comes back as a reference to the Passover. If you remember in the book of Exodus, the Passover was the Jewish celebration of the deliverance from Egypt. And as a celebration for Passover, there was a period of time when the children of Israel were called to get all of the leaven out of their homes and only eat unleavened bread for a time, which does not sound good because it's probably not. But the reason they had to get rid of the leaven, it was a symbol of them ridding themselves of sin that would corrupt the camp, corrupt the community. Because just like Paul says here, with leaven, with that yeast, all it takes is a little bit. And it, does, and it will affect the entire product. It will affect the entire thing. So here is what Paul says about false teaching and what it does. It spreads in its corruption. That's for your notes there. What, what false teaching does is it spreads in its corruption. the other time that Paul uses this analogy comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in which he specifically calls out some just grotesque and obscene sins that were happening within the Corinthian church. And in that book of the Corinthians, you'll note he never specifically only challenges certain people in that church, in that community. He challenges them all. Because that leaven of sin that was there has now corrupted everything. And this is a good time to take a side note here to think of just some good practical application and thoughts. This is exactly why we as believers need to take sin seriously. For one, this is obviously, you know, we we take false teaching seriously. If somebody comes among here, if somebody ever comes here to preach a, a false gospel, some message of bondage and not freedom in Christ, they need to be removed because all it takes is one, and the whole community, the whole church can be corrupted. But the same is true of sin. You think of Matthew chapter 18 This is why Jesus Christ gave the process of church discipline to his disciples. For the sake of the community, for the sake of everybody, there needs to be a process to take sin seriously, especially if somebody is living in unrepentant sin. Because all it takes is a little, all it takes is one, and everybody can become corrupted. This isn't a far fetched idea. If any scandal comes forth in any community, what results from that? People taking sides, arguments, division, and splits. Just a little leaven, and it leavens the whole lump. So a very specific application from this point here, and I have this for your notes. This, uh, this point that Paul makes here should cause us to be immediate and others centered when dealing with sin. Immediate and others centered when dealing with sin. For one, the call is to be immediate. And this is something that many people shy away from doing. There, this is something where uh, there's been many people that I've talked to, I've seen it in myself, where we see these issues in us begin to rise. Maybe it's a tendency for a very short and quick temper. Maybe it's a tendency to be dishonest. Or maybe it's a tendency to let the lust of the eyes overtake bit by bit. And we have to understand the reason these things grow in anybody is because there's always the choice in the beginning of these patterns of sin, where the person says to themselves, you know what, it's not that bad right now. It's not a huge deal right now. Because obviously, if they didn't think that, they would have nipped the issue in the bud right then and there. But there's always this compromise that tends to be made when big sins develop. When somebody is discovered, like a politician or a leader, in an intense, deep affair that has developed into just disgusting practices, do you really think that issue developed the time they were caught? The reality is, these things take over gradually. And they take over gradually also, because the base reality is, it's easier to not deal with things, especially if they're small? Who wants to put in the work to actually unpack why they have so much anger in their hearts? That sounds like a lot of work. Who wants to go through the work of having to uh, be honest with others about their struggles and eventually maybe have to face the potential shame in their own hearts of what their sin has done? Nobody wants to do that. None of that is easy. None of that is desirable but all it takes is a little. And eventually, the whole lump is destroyed. The whole lump is affected. And also, we have to be others centered in how we deal with our sin. And this is something, church, that we as people, we rarely ever think about when we are in sin. We rarely ever think about the immediate consequences our sin brings to others. We rarely ever think about what happens to those around us when we fall in sin. We only think of ourselves. The people who fall into scandalous affairs, do you really think they were truly thinking about their families in those moments and what they would have to go through? The people who let loose their anger on others because the venting helps them cope do you really think they ever truly think about the impact that's going to happen on the person they just unloaded on? Those who deceive to get by easily, do they really ever think about what that is going to do to the trust of the person that they have deceived? And even going beyond just our families, How often do we actually even think about our church when we sin? How often do we think about how this will impact our other friends, our church family, the community around us? If we truthfully thought about that more, I wonder if that would impact how immediate we were with sin. It might not. We are broken people at the end of the day. But Paul here tells us that we cannot be single-minded people when it comes to dealing with false teaching or with our own sin. We need to be others-centered about it. And it's hard to see the consequences of what our sin does. I, like probably most, would rather just not look at it and give myself some peace of mind. But to ignore it is not to obey the truth. And eventually, as Paul goes on to talk about false teaching, what false teaching eventually will lead to, as I have for your notes, it is a guide to destruction. Verse 10, Paul says that he has confidence in the Lord that the Galatian church will take no other view but the view of grace. And he tells us the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So it looks like in this moment that um, there was a specific person who was a bit of a ringleader, a ringleader of the, the destruction happening in the Galatian church. And Paul might not have known who he was, but the reality is anybody who brings false teaching into the church, especially from some type of leadership perspective, will face a harsh judgment and will bear the penalty for doing so. And this is why false teaching has to be taken seriously. This is why at the end of Galatians chapter 4, as Paul was setting up that allegory with Isaac and Ishmael, that he called his church, the church of people who are called to be the children of promise like Isaac, to drive the children of uh, Ishmael, who were not part of the promise, out of the camp. Because false teaching has no place in the church. It only brings up destruction. It is interesting that uh, at one point Paul had commented that he was afraid he'd labored in vain for the Galatian church. And yet in verse 10 he also says that he has confidence that his people will take no other view. It almost seems to be a bit of an internal struggle for Paul that he worries his people have misunderstood the gospel, but he's confident they will stand in it. But in verse 10, we see where his confidence comes from. His confidence is in the Lord, that they will take no other view. And the reality is, that is all we as the church can hold to for anybody coming to see Christ for who he is, is confidence in the Lord. That is why we don't become cynical and give up on God giving the gospel to others. This is why we don't become cynical and give up on caring about our witness at all. It's not because we possess some type of power that can bring people in. It's what Paul had. It's confidence in the Lord that he will do what he has purposed to do. In verse 11, Paul begins to shift gears a little bit here and begins to address an accusation that apparently has been uh, going around about him behind his own back. He says in verse 11, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So evidently, Paul is asking this rhetorical question because... Somehow, there were also accusations that he was preaching circumcision uh, I, it, it really just seems like they accused Paul of everything at this point because earlier on, the accusations were that Paul had you know left his old roots, his cultural roots, had forsaken the teaching of the Old Testament, had broken law just so he could bring grace in, and he 's bringing in this standard of of you know everybody gets to do whatever they want, he is not seeing sin for what it truthfully is, and now apparently he's also facing accusations that he's been preaching circumcision also and I mean, if I was paul i 'd be immensely frustrated like which one am I am I am I too loose or am I too strong? Which one am I? and it, it really does show to us that if you don't like somebody at all. They are just guilty of everything, aren't they? Right? Like for those, like we think, like for example, I hate to always talk about uh, politicians and such, but you know they, they tend to be the focus of some of our frustrations sometimes. But like if there's somebody speaking that you really don't like. It is completely fathomable that they could just be the worst person in their personal right, life. Like if there was somebody you didn't like, speaking about something, and you saw some article on, on on like on social media that said that this person you know was, went and punched puppies in his in his free time. Like you'd be like, oh yeah, I could believe that. He's like, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a puppy puncher for sure. Like that's what he seems like. So Paul was facing just accusations from all fronts. Now, to deal with this accusation that he's been preaching circumcision, he just asks a very basic question. If I'm doing that, why am I still facing persecution then? If I was preaching the issue that would have given me favor in almost any context I preached in, why am I still being persecuted? they obviously know that I'm not preaching circumcision because they would not persecute me if I did. And in verse 11, he continues on to say that in that case, the case of circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. If he preaches any kind of works righteousness, any kind of law-keeping as justification, that he has taken away the offense of the cross. Now, for most people, when they come to this passage, verse 12 is probably where the most offensive stuff was probably contained. And we'll talk about verse 12 here in a second. But for Paul the greatest offense to humanity that exists is the cross. He's called uh, this cross before the gospel of Christ a stumbling block before. It's a stumbling block to both what he would call the world and to Israel, right? The cross specifically is a massive stumbling block, a massive area of contention for the Roman Empire, for example, because the fact that Christ was crucified uh, is one of the most brutal things that could be imagined in a Roman context. There were many Roman leaders who actually wanted to outlaw crucifixion as a possibility for their citizens because of how brutal it was. So to hear a worldview based around that, a crucifixion, a cross, it just seems like a massive area of contention. And of course, for Israel at this time, obviously the cross is a huge area of offense, a stumbling block, because as we read in Galatians chapter three, to be hung on that tree is to be cursed. We talked about the curse of the cross, the cursed cross. So either way, If Paul is preaching a message that is getting him persecution, we know that it can't be circumcision. It must be the cross that he is preaching. And even still today, the cross remains offensive to the world. And why does it remain offensive to the world? There's a lot of words I could say, but I'm gonna sum them all up in this quote that I'm gonna read here from a great scholar named F.F. F. Bruce. So follow me along in this in this quote right here. It's not terribly long. He says, the cross cuts the ground from under every thought of personal achievement or merit where God's salvation is in view. To be shut up to receiving salvation. From the crucified one, if it is to be received at all, is an affront to all notions of proper self pride and self help. And for many people, this remains a major stumbling block in the gospel of Christ crucified. So, to sum that quote up, why is the cross offensive? Because it tells you you're not good enough because it tells you there's nothing you can do to bring yourself to Christ. That might not sound initially offensive to us in this context, because we have heard this message. For most of us here, I would hope we cling to that message. It's our lifeline. But think about the world we live in. What does every popular, influential person wants to communicate through their books, through their movies, through anything. They want to tell you that whoever you are, you are enough. Follow your heart, follow your gut, follow your dreams. You won't go wrong. You are enough. In fact, Whoever you want to be is enough. You can change whatever you want about your identity. You can be whoever you want to be, whatever you want. It's okay. The cross also tells us and tells the world that not only is who you are not anywhere close to enough, it also tells you there's nothing you can do about it. You're stuck because of the fact that we are born in sin. Like Paul had mentioned our last time together, if you want to keep the whole law, you can't stray from a single part of it, which he knows, and I'm sure his audience knows, and we definitely know, is impossible. So why is the cross so offensive? Because it breaks us down completely. Here is the offense of the cross. The human pride that is destroyed by grace. let's ask ourselves if we wanted the cross the gospel to not be offensive to the world what would we have to do we'd have to change the meaning of the cross we'd have to change the meaning of the gospel And that was Paul's situation. He had not changed the meaning of the offense of the cross. And that is why he was being persecuted. And it's this, in one sense, a challenge, in one sense, a comfort to us to know that if you are preaching the true cross, there will always be offense to the world. It's a challenge because I don't think anybody here wants to be chastised. I don't think anybody here wants to be looked down on. I don't think anybody here really wants to offend anybody if they can help it. But the gospel and the cross bring offense to it. But in one sense, it's also a comfort. Maybe you've had moments where there's a family member or a friend that you share your faith with, you share the gospel with, and it always ends up in this very tense moment where the conversations become very aggravated and become very uh, very combative or maybe there's just an ignoring of any time that uh, you bring up your faith, whatever it might be, I know the tendency is to think that, man, what, what did I do wrong there? What did I mess up? Am I just a really bad communicator? Am I just not cut out to give the gospel? Am I just too weak in my faith to do this? I'll give you the comfort that scripture foretells very clearly the world's going to hate the message of the cross. Every time somebody hates you for giving the gospel, there might be a little bit of comfort that you actually did it pretty well. Because there is a fence that is in the cross. And the next point for your outlines is takeaway. If our gospel does not offend, it may be that is because it is not a true gospel. And if the gospel, if the cross and the message of it was not offensive then the end and the life of Christ would have gone a lot differently. There is an important qualification I do want to bring on this point though. The cross in of itself, it's offensive. There's an offense in the gospel to the world because of the pride that it breaks down. Um, that is not your license to go and to try to find ways to be an offensive person. And I find this a lot with a certain section of conservative Christianity that there's this tendency for, for, for some groups to believe it's their job to always bring controversy on every single issue they can because they want to upset the world. And you know, I, I'm not here to declare that Christians should in any way cater to the world's philosophy or ideology, but there's a way to give the things of Scripture without being unnecessarily offensive and uh, I can't find a better word for it, unnecessarily triggering about it. You know what I'm saying? You will find plenty of conflict automatically just by being a true servant of Christ. You are also called to be a source of light as well as salt. You are also called to be a source of Christ love, not just uh, combativeness. So don't go creating issues for yourself beyond what you already have to by being unnecessarily combative on issues in the way you speak about it. It's like what the Apostle Paul spoke. You speak the truth, but you do so in love. Well, in verse 12, Paul begins to uh, give us a pretty blatant dose of how he's feeling at the moment. He tells the Galatian church that he wishes those who unsettle the church would emasculate themselves, would castrate themselves, quite literally. You know, I I don't really want this to happen, but I would find it funny if like somebody just posted that verse by itself on their timeline at some point. You know how you had those refrigerator verses? Like, what if somebody just had that verse on the refrigerator? I, I think it'd be kind of fun. Maybe that's just me though. And there's a couple of uh, different interpretations as to why Paul chose this language specifically. Uh, one one possible interpretation is there was this pretty local cult to Galatia, uh, this, this this cult of priests who made it a point to, to castrate themselves as part of their service to their deity, and so the idea is maybe Paul was saying is if, if the legalists want to make their faith about rituals just like the pagans do, then just go all the way and join them and follow what they follow. Uh, some believe that this is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and one of the uh, the laws of that chapter was that eunuchs were not allowed to enter into the temple of God. So Paul, maybe in this idea, is wishing that his opponents would become eunuchs so they would not approach God. My initial interpretation was that Paul is so done with his opponents that he does not want them to propagate anymore and just wants it to die with them. Whatever the idea is, it seems incredibly harsh and vindictive and a little strange considering that, he, uh, you know, c- considering that he is somebody who talks about speaking the truth in love. But we've talked about this before. Paul uses harsh words, but if the issue is a serious enough issue and the offense is a serious enough offense, harsh words can absolutely come from a place of love. Paul has love for his people and for his church. So he wants those who would corrupt it to get out, to stop making more of yourself. I wish that you would go away and stop corrupting this church. This brings up, I think a good point in thinking about the, our, our opponents as the church. And I have this for your notes. At the heart of the Christian to the lost and to the corruptor is different. The heart of the Christian to the lost and to the corruptor is different. I'll explain what I mean by that. When I talk about the lost, I'm talking of just the very generic way about those who do not have Christ. And they may be people who are indifferent about Christ. They may be people who hate Christ, but the reality is, is they are just lost. People who are in need of a savior. Now, our call as the church to them is to absolutely open our doors and welcome them in to hear the message of Christ. We want them to know him. We're not going to cater to them and their every desire and need if they're outside of Christ. It was the famous preacher, John MacArthur, who one time said that the, the world has no place to make demands on how a church service should look and how a church should prioritize themselves. And I would say for the most part, I agree with that. The lost do not make demands of the church. But the church absolutely does what they can to meet the lost where they are at and to bring them in to Christ. But for the corrupter, for those who go in to a place and either through their rampant and unrepentant sin or their desire to bring false teaching in, our doors do not stay open to them. They are in need of Christ just as much as the lost are. But our priority, church, is to honor God. And for those who would dishonor him by corrupting his church, need to get out. They need to be pushed out. This is why we at Berean Fellowship still practice church discipline. For those who would live in unrepentant sin, we don't want them damaging The whole lump, as we would say. That little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is why we take the preaching of the word very seriously. And this is why we as the church, for those who would corrupt it and break it, we wish for one or two things for the corruptors. We wish that they would either become one of Christ's own or they would just stop. One preacher I heard put it this way when it comes to the, the, the false teachers. He said, Lord, either save them or take them out. Pretty harsh way to say it, but I understand the heart behind that. Either save them or stop them from corrupting the church. And it's just another reminder, church, that we don't treat every single person the same. We need to be discerning to know who is the lost and who is the corruptor. And I would say anybody, like Paul has said here, who comes into a church and tries to bring in any type of legalistic works righteousness to take away the freedom of the security of the believer is a corruptor. So here we are in a spot yet again where we're reminded of the need to stand in our freedom. We have to battle ourselves and our own legalistic tendencies to stand in our freedom. We also have to battle the world and battle those who would corrupt the church. But at the end, like the Apostle Paul himself said, he cannot serve both the law. And Christ as Savior. You cannot serve both circumcision, the message of a symbol it represents, and Christ as his Savior. Just like Jesus told us, you cannot serve both mammon, wealth, and him as your savior. At the end of the day, you can't even serve your own family and him as your savior. there is going to be much offense given by the fact that we want to preach grace to the world. It doesn't sound like there should be when I say a sentence like that. But because we preach to the world that they are not enough, just as we are not enough in ourselves, and that there is nothing anybody can do, no cause they can support, no good deed they can do. There's nothing anybody can do to change that outside of the grace of God. There is going to be offense given. And sitting here, we might be okay with that until we actually go into the world and actually bring that offense to the world. Then it is difficult. Then it is discouraging and it is challenging. We come back here every Sunday to remind ourselves of why we do that. We do it for the God who has shown so much love to us in his gospel and in the cross that offends the world. And in reflecting upon that, I'll invite the worship team to come on up, the ushers to come up as we begin to hand out the elements of communion.